From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. This is The Tea Room. There's been a lot going on the last few years to keep a doctor busy. The natural world has been throwing plenty of spin balls and in this peak of busyness, there's not been much time for a clinic owner to focus on their business. This is despite a whole raft of changes going on with MBS, PBS, e-prescriptions, tax legislation, you name it. So this episode of The Tea Room, I'm speaking with Daniel Heath, who is an accountant and partner of DPM, and Josh Flett, who is director of the law firm Fletcher Clarendon. They're going to give us a rundown on how to give your private practice a health check. Welcome to The Tea Room, Daniel and Josh. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Wendy. Now, before we go any further, let me give a quick heads up to our listener about today's conversation with Dan and Josh. The information discussed here, it's of a general nature, is not intended to serve as advice, so it may not be right for your personal circumstances. So DPM Financial Services and Fletcher Clarendon recommend you obtain advice concerning specific matters before making a decision. That being said, Dan and Josh, there's a lot on doctors' plates right now, and one of the concerns they have is that they might be inadvertently missing some red flags in the health of their business. Can you take us through a few of the key risk areas for medical practices right now? Maybe, Josh, could you talk a bit about service agreements? Sure. Thank, thank you, Wendy. And I think you've summarised it quite succinctly there, that there are a significant amount of issues out there for practitioners to be considering. And one of those key issues is in response to a recent case from the Administrative Tribunal in New South Wales concerning service agreements and payroll tax. It's called the Thomas and Naz case. And there's been a lot of commentary out there from various different bodies and membership groups. Um, And so I'm sure a lot of the listeners are aware of that case. But that case really highlights the importance of practices having their agreements with their practitioners reviewed to ensure that they stand up to the issues addressed or outlined in that case because the consequences of not having an appropriately drafted agreement can be significant as we saw with the Thomas and Naz case where a payroll tax liability of well over $700,000 was identified. It's kind of the clinic owner's worst nightmare, a huge bill like that. Absolutely. And and often it's unintentional. You obviously want to have an agreement in place with the practitioners and you know the issues you want to address in that agreement, but you may not have received advice around the potential tax implications of that agreement. So it's essential that you go off and get that specialist advice because it is quite unique to medical practitioners and in particular general practices. So what are some of the pointers that you would say, apart from go and get specialist advice about service agreements, anything you can give us a heads up about to look for? Certainly. So some of the issues that came out of that case, while they need to be addressed on a case-by-case basis, were looking at how much control the practice exercises over the practitioner's practice and how they conduct that practice. So looking at whether or not there's a, a rostering system, looking at how payments from patients are received and how payments or whether payments are actually made from the practice to the practitioner. So there needs to be a a close review of the payment provisions of the agreement and how ultimately those patient fees are treated. And also looking at whether or not the agreement contains restraints in relation to the practitioner being able to practice at other 
sites or locations. Those are all hallmarks of a different arrangement to a service arrangement. Dan, anything you want to throw in? Yeah, Wendy, I just wanted to add that uh, all too commonly we see doctors who have handshake agreements with practices that they work in and, you know, cases like this highlight that it is absolutely critical that there is adequate documentation and the documentation reflects the nature of the relationship and, you know, it continues on the importance of things like that the appropriate tax invoices are being generated things like GST and then, of course, income tax become more complicated if the documentation doesn't reflect the true true nature of the relationship and what's actually happening. And so historically we've seen a lot of it where, where doctors don't have the adequate documentation in place. So we're really imploring people to make sure all of that documentation exists, it's accurate and it's, it's well prepared. How often do you see clinics that don't have this kind of documentation in place? Every day. Really? It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, common that doctors trust each other and doctors just work together on informal handshake arrangements. And they do that because they're either doctors they've known for a long time or they're doing it because... They're so focused on the medicine, they're not turning the mind to some of these issues. So there's a range of reasons it can happen, but it happens all the time. What about equity holder agreements? Maybe, Josh, do you want to pick up on this one? How do we, how do we work towards avoiding disputes that cause so much grief with equity holder agreements? Absolutely. So I think the starting point is when people decide to start a group practice, they will necessarily have to decide on the type of structure they want to utilise and they'll do that in consultation with their advisors, usually their accountant. And then once they've set that structure up, they need to have an agreement in place amongst the owners about how they intend to manage that business and operate the business. Um, And if they don't have that and a dispute arises, which is quite common in business. If you don't have an agreement that says what happens in the event of the dispute, then the the dispute can become quite litigious and and become drawn out and and costly for everyone involved. So an equity holder agreement amongst um, many things deals with how a dispute amongst the owners is handled. Um, It also deals with all types of decision-making for the business from the day-to-day operations to the more serious and significant decisions in relation to um, having people join the group or for people exiting the group. So what what an equity holder agreement or sometimes referred to as a unit holder agreement, if you've got a unit trust or a shareholder agreement, if it's a company, it it deals with all aspects of the operation of the actual of the business quite separately to the the medical side of what um, what the practice is involved in. So It's a key document and it's critical for avoiding disputes. Josh, what are some of the more common disputes that keep coming up for medical practice owners? The common disputes are typically around people exiting the group. Um, And you might have someone that's worked in the practice for many years and is deciding to retire and they see the value of their interest in the business being quite significant and perhaps the remaining owners who are going to continue in the practice don't see the value the same way. And unless you've agreed on what that value will be, 
in the agreement or have a methodology in the agreement for how you would facilitate someone's exit or retirement from the group, then that can create a, a dispute and lawyers getting involved, which is not necessarily in, in anyone's interest. So if you've got an agreement that sets out how that will be facilitated and the method for valuing the owner's interest in, in the business, then that is a much better position for everyone because you have certainty around your position in the event that you want to retire from a group. So before you establish an equity holder agreement, you sit down and work out how we're going to value this in the event that someone does leave and all be in agreement on that. Because this sort of thing can happen within businesses where everyone's been getting on really well, where there's a good goodwill between all the shareholders and that it just comes to a, a head when someone wants to depart and puts a sour note on everything that's gone before. It, absolutely. And I think it's an important conversation to have at the outset of any venture, even at that very early stage. And I think that's an important time to consult with your advisors, particularly your tax advisors, who will be able to guide you around the, the principles of valuation and how practices are typically treated from a valuation perspective and whether you put a formula in the agreement or whether you have an arrangement where you can agree upon a particular approach to valuation. It's essential to have that in the agreement. And certainly the equity holder agreements are typically entered into either at the same time that the structure's established or very shortly after. Can we talk a little bit about superannuation? What are some of the potholes to avoid? One of the things with superannuation is if there is a contract or arrangement, if there's a service agreement that um, says that the practice is there to provide services to the doctor, then there's not usually going to be superannuation payments. So I think it's really important that it's clear that the doctors who are in there working know that they're not getting superannuation if that's not the fact. Normally they do. Normally they know that when they've been a junior doctor, They've been working as salary and wage earner and once they're qualified, they become a contractor in that practice and they have a service arrangement and they're not getting superannuation payments. And then I think from the practice's point of view, it's critical that they understand their obligations when they are required to be paying superannuation. Josh, did you have anything else you wanted to add there? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think this comes back again to the agreements, which seems to be the common theme of this discussion. And because... A contractor relationship can be deemed an employment relationship for superannuation purposes. So notwithstanding the relationship has all the hallmarks of a contractor agreement, if there's certain factors present, then it can be deemed an employment relationship. And again, this comes back to the issue of control. So if the practice is exercising sufficient control over how the practitioner or the allied health professional is conducting their business or their practice, then for superannuation purposes, it can be deemed an employment relationship and superannuation would be payable. It's an issue that the profession is aware of, but it can be mitigated by having the correct agreements in place. And then also, it's not just about having the agreements in place. It's important that it's reflected in how you actually conduct yourself and your practice and interact with the contractor. Josh, can we get a little bit more granular around what are some examples of when a practice manager might be 
putting a little bit too much control on how a contractor does their business? Sure. So if you have a, a roster of when a practitioner will be in the practice, if you um, tell the practitioner how to perform their work, so if you've got very strict policies and guidelines about how a practitioner can conduct their practice, if they only work in the one practice, that's also a bit of a red flag. So there's some of the things to look out for when you're engaging a practitioner or other individual as a contractor, um, because they'll all um, be considered together in determining whether or not there's in fact a, an employment relationship on foot. Pathology subleases, it's a very common thing for many clinic practices. What are some of the risk areas that you see in this space? The Department of Health have been monitoring pathology subleases for the last few years. Because a lot of practices charge uh, rent that, when it's not looked at in a vacuum, would be seen to be quite high, um, particularly where other parts of that premises might be let for a much lower rent. So essentially, the pathology providers have argued that they've been paying exorbitant rents and the government have intervened to ensure that there's no possibility that that rent payment could be seen as a payment for referrals, which has been a great concern for the Department of Health. And the general rule of thumb is that it, if it's outside of 20% of what is considered market, then that would be considered outlier rent and it would be assessed by the Department of Health. Now, all pathology subleases need to be submitted to the Department of Health now when they're entered into and also any renewals. So that was a relatively recent development and it's certainly still being monitored quite closely by the Department of Health. So it's an important thing for practices to have reviewed and to do their due diligence around what is market rent for that particular arrangement. Um, and that's that's the that's really the key issue is what what is the market and what is therefore the market rent. Okay, so we've covered off on service agreements, employees versus contractors, superannuation, avoiding disputes with equity holder agreements, and the pathology subleases. Any final words of recommendation or points for clinic owners to think about as we wrap up? Just like we as humans need to go off and get a health check from time to time. It's important that businesses do the same. And in order to keep on top of all the legislative change and changes to how the ATO view certain arrangements, it, it's worthwhile having your overall business reviewed by your advisors, whether they be your lawyer or, or accountant, to ensure that the arrangements you have in place still stack up. And certainly that's for existing practices. I think if you're about to embark on the exciting journey of starting your own practice, whether it be as an individual or as a group, uh, the, the critical first step is getting advice um, from your typically your accountant around the appropriate structure and they'll then be able to guide you on that journey to address each and every one of those issues that we've just discussed today. Thank you very much, Daniel Heath from DPM and Josh Flett from Fletcher Claridon. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Wendy. Thanks very much, Wendy. Pleasure to be here. 
We do hope you enjoyed this podcast, but please remember that the information discussed here is of a general nature. It's not intended to serve as advice. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of DPM and Fletcher Clarendon, not the Tea Room. This information is general in nature, so it might not be right for your personal circumstances. DPM Financial Services and Fletcher Clarendon recommend you obtain advice concerning specific matters before making a decision. I'm Wendy John. You've been listening to The Tea Room. If you like what you've heard, head on over to Spotify or iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts and you can listen to our other episodes and subscribe. Leave us a review while you're there. And if you have any news tips or just want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.